Hello, everyone. Happy Tuesday. It is Tech Tuesday here on INE Live. We're so glad you're joining us today. I'm your host, Catherine Brown, and today we're talking about the massive security breach within Cisco Networks, and we're doing a bit of an incident postmortem review. You may have heard on May 24th, 2022, earlier this year, Cisco Security Incident Response and Cisco Talos, their cybersecurity intelligence group, detected a breach on their network. Further investigation revealed that a Cisco employee's VPN credentials were compromised through a combination of phishing and social engineering tactics. Technical details of the attack were posted on Cisco's blog, and earlier this month, images of the stolen files were posted on the dark web. So we're taking a look at that, examining it, and we have two of INE's longstanding experts here to break down exactly what happened, how and why it happened, and how we can take the lessons learned from this attack to better protect our infrastructure moving forward. First, as we do each time we stream here on INE Live, want to let you know we are streaming live right now across social media platforms, including LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Twitch. Uh, and Twitch, there we go. Be sure to like and subscribe on the social media platform you're using so you can stay in the loop when we do go live and get those notifications. We want you to get involved, talk to us, talk to others. We'd love to see that. We just posted a, uh, a summary of the attack there in our chat so you can, uh, if you're not familiar with it, you can click that, follow along, and, uh, and use it to ask some questions. Our team is monitoring chat, so if you have a comment, drop it in. If you have a question, do us a favor, put a cue at the beginning so we can find those questions easily as we're combing through the comments, and we'll get to as many as we can today. With that, I want to bring in our guest, Brian McGann, certainly needs no introduction, co-founder of INE and director of networking content, four-time CCIE, including security, world-class instructor, and mentor to thousands of IT professionals. Brian, so glad to have you here with us today. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me today. I'm really excited about today's session. As soon as I saw the posting that uh, there was a compromise into Cisco's network, I knew immediately that we had to run one of these sessions and you know dive deeper into what specifically happened. Yeah, we're excited to hear what you have to say. Uh, so thanks, Brian. Also with us here today, Jack Reedy, INA's Director of Cybersecurity Content. Jack has more than 14 years of experience in the tech industry, including 10 years in cyber defensive operations. He is also a familiar face here at INA Live. So thank you, Jack, for once again being here and uh, lending your voice. I appreciate it. And yeah, whenever Brian sent this over to me, I was uh, you know 100% on board with jumping into one of these. It's a really interesting case study. Yeah, and, and, and it's really cool to have both of you on the show today coming in. You're, um, you know, certainly experts in your own field and then coming together um, to examine this this incident that kind of crosses these two these two fields of networking and cybersecurity. So it uh, should be a really interesting show. Glad to have both of you here. Um, so, Jack, I want to start with you. The article in question um, states that, as I said uh, a moment ago, May of 2022, Cisco Security Incident Response Team, or C- CERT, is that how we say this? Is that how we say CERT? this? Yeah. CERT, all right, good. Was alerted to the compromise. It began taking action with Cisco Talus. Um, first off, let's just dive into what is a security incident response team? What do they do? And then tell us a little about Cisco Talus. Those are two of uh, two of the words that we're gonna be using a lot today. <laughs> yeah, so a CERT, a uh, bit of a correction too. So CERT for Cisco stands actually for Cisco, security instant response team, which I thought was a nice little twist on their stuff. Um, and specifically though, a security instant response team or cybersecurity or however different way you chop up that acronym, basically it is the it is the first response that you'll get in an enterprise network to identify either is this malware, has this affected the security or the baseline uh, operations of a system, and how widespread is are the effects of this, uh, you know, uh, actions that the attacker took? Uh, 
usually they will do first do the initial analysis and then they will provide recommendations either for remediation or if it's widespread recovery operations which can include things like you know enterprise-wide password resets uh, re-imaging of systems as well as they can also so c-search can also work in a uh, contractual manner where they show up on retainer to third-party companies as well uh, to provide help and assistance as necessary um, and then to pivot off that what is cisco talus so cisco talus is similar to that however they provide threat intelligence for industry-wide so they are experts not only providing remediation actions but then chasing down the attackers to somewhat of a point of origin, meaning that it's called attribution and companies don't usually have enough time or you know knowledge to be able to understand exactly where every attack comes from, especially when anonymization is being used. In this case though, Talos is an expert at this. So they already have a, a history of understanding when and where these attacks have occurred and they're able to do something called fingerprinting to really understand the behaviors of these attackers and then identify work that they've previously done or that they are ongoing and in, in getting involved with. Gotcha. All right. So, um, Brian, you are, you're obviously um, expert over in, in the networking kind of corner of all of this. When you first learned about the attack, what was your reaction? Were you, were you, you know, shocked, surprised um, that a company like this could be compromised um, to this level, or, or, or was it, you know, essentially a matter of time? Um, I think it's just a matter of time. You know, I think any big company, Fortune 50, Fortune 100, is is pretty much constantly under cyber attack. <clears throat> Excuse me, but what I thought was kind of interesting and unique about this situation is the transparency level that Cisco went through in uh, the Cisco Talos blog posting that talks about not only how was the initial uh, vector of the attack work, so how did the, the hacker get the user's credentials in the first place, and then once they were inside the network, what were the specific you know type of compromises that they were trying to, to do along the way. Um, and like Jack said, one of the big uh, issues with defending against this type of attack is that most companies don't really have their own resources uh, to be able to track this information or, you know, in like a post-mortem uh, event, try to track it down afterwards, which is essentially what Cisco Talos is uh, effectively designed to do. So not really surprised that Cisco is getting hacked, but I would say, yes, it's surprising that they were as effective as they were in this particular case. And then again, how much transparency Cisco uh, put out there about the specifics of the attack. So I want to turn it over to both of you now, um, just to kind of go back and forth. And, and if you can just explain, kind of take us through what exactly happened. Um, I think one of you has a screen share, Jack, that may be you, but if you can take us yeah. through, um, because in, in this case, Cisco really did, they were extremely transparent to your point, Brian. Um, they released a ton of information. Um, and, and we can use that information. And, and in fact, they say that they, you know, they, they want us, they want the broader uh, community to be using that information to change, enhance, uh, you know, uh, tweak security procedures so this doesn't happen to someone else. So um, with that, you know, I just want to turn it over to you two to kind of take us through exactly what happened here and how this all unfolded. Sure, absolutely. So 
in this, uh, let's see if I can make that a little better. There we go. Um, so in this, the to start this off, basically what ended up happening was a user, a particular user, uh, targeted through a through a couple of different mechanisms, uh, had their their own credentials compromised um, for Google Chrome or Google, you know, their own personal Google account in which their browser had syncing turned on. So by compromising those credentials, they could log in to a Google Chrome instance and then have the same credentials. Now, if you've used Google Chrome before and you've entered a username and password somewhere, you'll get a pop-up box on occasion that says, would you like to save this for future use? In this case, this user clicked yes multiple times and one of the credentials they saved was the Cisco VPN. So having compromised that user's personal Google account, they now had a username and password, but because Cisco is advanced and they are mature as an enterprise network, uh, they were missing the third part, which is an MFA. Um, so multi-factor authentication, which basically is some form of token that you have to uh, authenticate as a user. So it's not, when we talk about authorization, there's a couple different types, and usually it's something you know, something you are, something you have, as well as a couple different things. You can also do like something you do, which is behavior, authorization, tokenization, a couple other things. In this case, it was multi-factor because you have something that the user knows, which is the username and password, and something that they have, in which case is the phone, which a lot of us, we have, you know, multiple devices and things like that, that we use some form of app to either hit a button and say, yes, this is me and authorize, or type in a pin code that's provided via the app. The user, and I think we can, me and Brian can go back and forth on this because we were talking previously about the MFA uh, attacks here. They had two different types of attacks happen. They had a social engineering attack where they would get random calls from individuals pretending to be, um, you know, other companies or authorities trying to help them through something. And they would legitimately uh, try and ask them to provide that code that was in their app. Uh, option two is they repetitively added in, you know, requested, is this you multiple times from the multi-factor, the point to where they had uh, MFA fatigue is what the attack is called. Now, with Brian, um, you know, he had talked about seeing this previously i mean what are your thoughts on mfa i mean i've gotten that you know that uh mfa request multiple times when i wasn't expecting it yeah jack and i had talked about this a little bit offline and um this is the first time i've heard of this type of vector before it's basically the idea is like on your you know your iphone or whatever it says the, this user is trying to log in from this location do you accept them yes or no so most of the time it's pretty obvious when you get one of these messages and you know it's not you but unfortunately, there's no way to cancel out of these or to opt out of these. So basically, the attack is that you just keep hammering your phone over and over and over with these requests. And hopefully, the person's going to accidentally click accept as, as opposed to deny. So it's kind of a, you know, a technology trick to get, a, to get around the, uh, uh, the two-factor authentication. Yeah, absolutely. It's also uh, another form of social engineering. Specifically, when it came to the social engineering as well with the phone calls, that's called vishing. You know, I'm, uh, I don't know about you, but I, how often do you answer your phone for somebody for a number you don't recognize? True, true, true. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a big part of this too is 
um, security awareness training that, you know, no matter how secure your technology can be, we can have the latest firewalls, intrusion prevention, you know, antivirus and stuff like that. But if someone calls you on the phone and says, hey, Bob, what's your password? And, you know, you give your password away. Unfortunately, that's not going to help, you know, with the, uh, the end to end security at the end of the day. Yeah, that's I mean, that's 100 percent true. But in this case, you know, because they were able to compromise the browser, they actually the the attackers did have the username and password. So they already had, you know, some form or some way to get in there. And it wasn't even the user giving it away. It there was still another technical control in there that stopped them from just immediately gaining access to the VPN, too. So it was really great. I think the only way that they could have improved and they talk about this. Um, on the postmortem at the very bottom of the article that we shared out um, was putting a timeout value for failed MFA attempts. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If they had just capped it at 10 and then the accounts locked out, that would have fixed this whole situation. Yeah, or there should be like a maximum amount of push requests that you can send before it times out, something like that, yeah. Yeah, either either or, and you know, Personally, what I would like to see is that from an instant response background is if you hit that exhaustion level and an account is locked out, then uh, a uh, ticket is created over at your instant response team to investigate because usually you shouldn't have that many attempts or logouts or anything else like that. It either speaks to something being broken because you do have APIs that can try that, that occur a lot. Um, So it either speaks to something being broken or... Uh, it speaks to somebody trying to attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, my first thought process with this with this was that it was kind of a zero day attack, at least in my opinion, because I had never heard of the MFA fatigue before. So it's like mm-hmm. one of those things. How do you protect against the unknown? If if I didn't know that this yeah. was a vector in the in the beginning, you know, and I didn't know to log my MFA attempts, you know, I think I'm adding security by doing multi factor authentication, but you know potentially making it even weaker at the end of the day if it's not set up right. So a little parallel here. It's a funny thing. You mentioned, you know, how do you know? Um, I don't know if you knew this or not, but a lot of times in zoos, the safety precautions that they put, like the height of the railing versus the gap between the animals and the people, it's all a guesstimate just by experience and best practices. So sometimes that's what security is. It's just a guesstimate of what situation and then quickly altering on the change and on the fly too. That's a pretty good analogy. So wait till the animals get out and then we realize that we have to build the fence a little bit higher. Exactly. Yeah, wow. that uh, legit, legitimately it's it's a watching and waiting game. And oh, that's something new. OK, so let's adjust that. Let's adjust that. Make things better and safer for everybody to come and you know get involved. It's the same thing in enterprise security. You have, Sometimes you have to just send it and see what the reactions are. I mean, when I was working at it, we used to call it a screen test. <laughs> see how long till the users yell at us for something we changed. Nice. So let's talk a little bit about um, more specifics of the, the attack. So we're at the point now where the, the attacker got the user's credentials. They were able to log into the VPN. So at that point, how would Cisco even know that, you know, if they were, let's assume they're not logging the multi-factor authentication, how would they know from that point on that it's actually an attacker and not just a regular user that's, that's trying to get onto the network? So one methodology that that isn't that successful, but uh, a lot of incident response teams use is regionality by IP addressing. 
Now, this can be beaten by going from a VPN to a node within the country that you're attacking and then logging into another VPN through that node. So it's one that can be defeated pretty easily with a mature, uh, you know, a mature attacker mindset. But um, if you see somebody logging in via, let's say, Italy or France or whatever else, and that user is generally in America, that's a big red flag. Having been on global networks before, this is a very difficult thing to establish because, uh, you know, I so I previously I've worked in a company that had uh, we were in 44 countries and we'd frequently get this flag because a developer would just take a weekend and go from, you know, Germany to Norway, for instance, just on vacation. Um, and the second that they logged in or their VPN dropped out because they were VPN into the company, you know, the client network and then the VPN dropped out and they went back in to check their email or something like that. We got it. You know, we would get a flag and that happened all over the world. Um, another, however, instance is if you take a look at login times for the users. Now, this has become a little more difficult recently because, you know, work from home instances, people can log in anywhere, also mobile devices. So you would have to really set up your gateway and take a look at the login hours. You know, if and you could do it with behavior, with machine learning, things like that, but it would be difficult whenever the attacker acts like a user. It becomes very difficult uh, to tell the difference between, you know, machine versus actual user. Exception is another way would be what they're accessing. So if you have somebody that's working in finance, for example, that's all of a sudden trying to access a bunch of HR documents that they have no business, that could be a red flag. But you would need to set up monitoring for uh, file structure, share drive structure. So it sounds like the key is logging and and really m having someone full time monitor those logs to see you know when you get an alert what's really going on. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah, Catherine, if we could go back to the um, to the screen share of the a blog for a minute, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the specifics of of what they. Um, had talked about in the attack here. So it says essentially that once the user was uh, attached to the VPN, they were able to access some of the other systems internally by doing what they call as a, um, oh, Jack, I can't think of the word now. When you're, you're already in the environment and you're trying to reach further within that environment, you're trying to pivot, right? Yeah. You're trying to pivot, okay. pivot from so, one system yeah. to another. Yeah. And not only did they pivot, they also used a technique called living off the land. So basically they landed on a box and then they started utilizing uh, Windows tools specifically to do their reconnaissance to then pivot deeper and deeper into the network. Um, they were able to tell that also the individuals had hands on the keyboard as they were doing it because they found a lot of the CLI, uh, the command line interface commands. Uh, some of them had misspellings, in them, which you wouldn't see if they were just running a script remotely and sending, you know, uh, sending commands via SSH or something like that. So it was really interesting that once they landed on a box, they started doing you know initial reconnaissance, um, and then they 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 basically grabbed as many credentials as they could as quickly as they could, and then they went deeper into the network and did a pivot from there as well. I believe they talked about they got into their Citrix servers, and then from there elevated escalated to their uh, Active Directory. 
So it seemed that um, it says they were able to. Let's see where it says the. Um, basically, how was Talos or how was Cisco alerted to the fact that the user was trying to to do something nefarious? Do you know what I mean? I'm looking for the section here that it said. Yes. So basically, the user. Um, once they got through the VPN, they started doing a combination of they would land on a box, they would do reconnaissance, they would establish persistence, and then they would find credentials and do their best to elevate and then pivot. So they would, you know, grab credentials, make sure they had the right credentials. And they said the, the first time they did this, they reached out to as many systems as they could, got access to all of these individual systems, and then they pivoted over to them. And then they started working their way to the Active Directory. Once they got domain uh, admin, they were able, that's whenever the uh, C cert or the, uh, you know, the cert was able to, um, that's when they identified them as the compromises likely occurred. Now, it's very likely that it was because of the monitoring on administrative credentials. Uh, generally speaking, you, you can, you can as, as, a, as a cert, monitor administrative activity however the amount of the volume of just pure administrative activity that goes on in an enterprise environment mm -hmm. is insane and every time that you elevate or escalate privileges um, and sending a flag or some type of notification to let's say a sim it really does drown drown out a lot of alerts so a lot of times what you'll find search monitoring instead is the creation of new administrative accounts. In this case, the attacker created local uh, local account, local admin account, I should say, called Z with a very specific password via, I believe it was a uh, command line, uh, Windows command line, uh, net user uh, add uh, command. With that, that would have sent up a really big red flag that somebody is adding local permissions and things like that, especially if the system that they are on has no need for that. So, for example, if you see a local admin being added, I'll use the finance computer again. If you see somebody in finance, you know, uh, a CPA or something like that, adding a local user that's an administrator, that should be a massive red flag that's, you know, send something up to your SIM immediately as an alert. Yeah, I could see that definitely be an issue with the logging that if you're logging too much, that it would be difficult to try to sort through it and, you know, figure out what is even relevant to begin with. But I hadn't thought of that before. That's that's a really good idea to only log the creation of a new account that's an administrator as opposed to just, you know, the administrators logging in. Because like you said, that could be your automation script logging into your boxes doing, you know, whatever normal maintenance during the day. So how could you tell that apart from, you know, some sort of illegitimate uh, activity? Yeah, so, well, there's two differences here. So there's logging. I, I still say log the administrative actions, but alerting. So what you're going to alert on versus the logging. So you should be able to go and reference every time an uh, administrator's taking an action. But what you should be sending to your alert console via your SIM should probably only be stuff like, hey, a new admin account's been created, because that's really easy to classify. You can just send an email over to HR. Hey, did we hire a new new person? What is this admin account? You can also CC the infrastructure guys and be like, hey, did you guys add on a new admin account? If both say no, then that's an event. You need to go investigate. 
Yeah, so it sounds like a combination of security awareness training and then better tools to, to deal with these situations. Yeah, a lot of people uh, would be surprised probably about the amount of data science that goes into instant response. Um, it Because, you, I mean, you basically you're collecting, like you said, logging. You're logging as much as you can that's relevant to the scenarios that you might find in security. And then you're trying to configure alerts based on that logging that if, you know, the conditions equal X, Y, and Z, send me an alert notice. And then you would have, well, in this case, junior analysts go and validate, does this look like an actual attack? Does it, you know, or did something get messed up in the alert logic? And then you would escalate to somebody else who can actually do the deep dive. And is this malware, you know, maybe do some reverse engineering on the malware, identify whether or not it's a compromise, and then start pulling together all the necessary resources to deal with the compromise, including legal PR for bigger instances like this. So one of the other um, aspects that Cisco had posted on this in more detail that I kind of want to cover is how they figured out who the threat actor was or, or what mm -hmm. they're calling in this case, the initial access broker or the IAB. Uh, specifically, they gave some sort of hacking group name and it says that they have moderate to high confidence that this attack was conducted by this particular adversary. So I guess the question is, Jack, how does a company like Cisco correlate this data to figure out that it could be this particular group versus you know any other script kitty out there on the internet that has some bots? Yeah, so um, Cisco Talus is kind of the key function here because they are an intelligence, you know, intelligence driver. So they would have access to all the historic data that would allow somebody, like I described previously, fingerprint and then determine by those fingerprints who, what this uh, attacker is associated with. Um, it looks like that they have a history of basically gaining access to an enterprise network, putting down a bunch of backdoors, a bunch of what we would call persistence, that is a system could be restarted and the system would still you know, talk back to command and control servers. Um, and they have then sold those to other, be it ransomware groups or you know, nation state actors, APTs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's uh, access as a service is what we used to call it. I'm not sure if that's still the acronym now, um, but it's very similar to um, it's it's very similar to like AWS provides you know infrastructure as a service. You have Microsoft providing software as a service. Legitimately, in some circles, you can just say, "Hey, I have access to X, Y, and Z, and it's at this level. In this case, domain admin, which is insane." I'm offering it up for this much in Bitcoin. Who's going to buy it? They also have similar services to this in reconnaissance for software vulnerabilities. So part of the issue is uh, when a zero day falls, right? Some brokers out there are able to say, hey, I know that this company will be affected by that zero day. I've got this list of companies that will be affected by this zero day. It's for sale for this amount of money come grab it and then start, you know, attacking the second that the zero day falls. Hacking as a service, bearded IT dad. Yeah, That's I see that. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah it's um, hacking as a service is another form, but that's somebody doing the work for you to gain, to gain like the actual attack post access. So there's different stages and different ways that you can do that as well. 
Okay, uh, I want to go to an audience question we have here. Uh, there was a question about monitoring of the VPN alerts. That uh, the question was, there was an increase in bandwidth due to exfiltration of the data. Should they not have set an alert on that? Okay, so the basic idea is that the the user was able to get compromised. They had some sort of in data they were trying to grab, and they were downloading this. So the question is, why wasn't the system able to to figure out? You know that they're not supposed to download those files, for example. Uh, I didn't see anything where they actually exfiltrated data outside of credentials. I mean, they, they dumped a couple databases, but you know, if you're talking just a you know uh, what is it a semicolon delimited CSV file, that's going to be only a couple megs. It would it would not peak uh, for a data stream I/O as far as bandwidth utilization unless you're dumping the entire share drive for some reason or something like that. Um, keep in mind that on a day-to-day -day basis, let's say the marketing team, uh, the marketing team can upload and download videos and images of the gigabyte upon gigabyte upon gigabyte. Now, you can set up monitoring, and I've done this before, set up monitoring and alerts for, you know, top talkers or do a once a week top talkers review for the bandwidth utilization. But a lot of times what you'll find is it's either marketing team or DevOps where the marketing team is doing something with high resolution, high imagery, versus DevOps doing something with API calls and data, you know, data migration, things like that. Um, not to say that it's useless, right? Um, however, what I prefer to monitor is the changeover week per data utilization. So specifically by user, how much data did they do this week per the next week? And if it explodes over, let's say, a 30% threshold, then I'll investigate that as opposed to just the top talker, you know. So some sort of like abnormalities in their normal patterns is that is what you're looking for, right? Yeah, yeah um, I believe it's Malcolm Gladwell has a great book called Outliers, Outliers, however you pronounce it, um, that discusses, you know, pattern observation as well as finding the unique parts of patterns that are, lie outside of what you would find in the mean or the mode of the uh, statistical, you know, so statistical anomalies, things like that. Excellent methodology. I even have a book up here called uh, Statistical Analysis of Network Data. And it also talks about it. Basically, you can actually use math as a security analyst to identify periods that just don't make sense and then start your investigations with that in order to find these oddities that are subverting your security controls. Sorry, I'm looking for another customer question here. So while you're looking, Brian, let me just um, let me just jump in there. Um, Infosec Brett raised this question and, and it got me thinking, um, just surprised the end user didn't raise up the odd MFA request. Um, and, and that, kind of got me thinking, so what is the responsibility on the individual employee in this case to uh, to monitor security concerns and raise those questions, particularly among employees who maybe are not tech savvy? You know, we hear uh, Cisco, this is a tech company, right? But um, there are lots of departments there, just like there are at i and &E. and I, I don't want to pick on any of the departments, um, but you know, there's there's HR, there's finance, there's event planning, there's public relations, there's marketing. Um, and and depending on those different departments, I mean, those those departments, people within them generally have a different set of expertise, right? Um, so what is the responsibility on employees 
company-wide, really regardless of what company we're talking about, to, uh, to monitor these security concerns and then raise those concerns to management? Well, I, yeah. would, I, would, I would say, oh, go ahead, Brian, if you want. Yeah, I was just going to say real quick, the, you know, your security is only as good as your weakest link. So uh, you, we can have all the technical tools at our disposal that are trying to, you know, automate the, the system and take analysis and figure out if someone is trying to hack it. But, you know, if, if the hack is as easy as getting someone's username and password, uh, because they're, they're not, you know, having good password strength, uh, you know, configured, then this is a different issue that we need to talk about in, in terms of just a security awareness of, you know, don't open emails from people that you don't know, or don't answer your phone, don't return voicemails from, you know, it sounds like the boss is calling you, but asking for your password. So it's, it's more of a, a, a people training issue, I would say, than a, a technology issue per se. I'd agree with that. On top of that, you know, um, Bearded IT Dad makes a really great point. Many employees don't want to report because they don't want to get in trouble for being compromised. And that's a really fair statement. I would say that, you know, this was on the individual user. They really should have brought up this odd behavior, if anything, just to fix it from an IT perspective. Like, why am I getting this is exhausting? Why am I getting this many alerts? Did something break? Like I shouldn't get this. And then, and they might have done that too. There might have been a miscommunication between the IT team and the security team where IT team was like, um, not quite sure. Let me get to that eventually. Cause IT teams, just like security teams, they get exhausted too and inundated with requests. And if this is just an odd user behavior, as opposed to, you know, critical, critical systems failure, it's going to be prioritized in a different way. Right? So by the time this attack might've actually hit the security team's radar, the IT team might not have had a chance to look at it, but either way, I disagree with the idea that we need to punish users for security practices because you would would get exactly what the um, exactly what bearded IT dad was talking about, which is the fear of re retaliation. It 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 should be a comprehensive program that is there to support the users towards the end goal of making the company more secure. Otherwise, you get this where the end user doesn't want to talk, doesn't want to speak, and if, you know, uh, you can't analyze what you don't know about, right? So if the end user isn't actually reporting the symptoms of the illness, if you will, then, you know, how are you supposed to start providing the fix actions or, or the, you know, antibiotics, if you will? Jack, you mentioned earlier that um, the way that, that, that this compromise really originated was the employee synced Google Chrome accounts. Um, I think it's probably fair to say a lot of people use different accounts on the same computer and probably a lot of people sync those Google accounts, um, those Chrome accounts. Should, should people not be doing that? Or is there a particular red flag that people should be on the lookout for in terms of, okay, sync this, but but don't sync that? Yeah, so just like, just like the way that you handle data or projects in a business, you should also handle your credentials. I would never, never sync my VPN credentials to a browser session. 
However, if I have, you know, um, a game that I play via browser, then I'll sync those credentials because if they compromise that, yeah, you have access to my game profile. Okay. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you have to uh, adjust your daily life to, you know, make things easy for yourself within reason. Um, MFA is an extra step to your authentication process. Yes. But what are you protecting access to your company? Then it makes perfect sense. Access to your banking. That makes a lot of sense. If you're a streamer and your business is going on Twitch or YouTube and doing exactly what we're doing now, going live, talking to people. For example, if you are uh, Jacksepticeye, Markiplier, or one of the other big YouTube names, Linus Tech Tips, uh, if you're any of those individuals and you're going live on YouTube, then yeah, you should probably have MFA turned on for YouTube because that is your, you know, that's your business versus are you just going you know are you going to go read a comic on a website in the in the browser save those credentials i think that there is a level of security and trust that comes with each software and on as you as an individual it's your responsibility to dictate what needs to be much more secure versus what doesn't in this case i wouldn't have used a um i wouldn't have saved my credentials to the browser personally i would have used a uh, password manager on top of that i you know I would also argue that uh, Cisco should have a um, expiration policy on what and I don't know if they do or don't because this attack might have happened so fast the expiration policy wouldn't have occurred but it should have occurred um, usually 90 days to 120 days is pretty much the industry standard where you change your password up so Jack going along with that uh, you had mentioned password managers. Do you think in, in this situation that would have maybe helped at all? Or what's what's the main idea of why would having a password manager make it more secure than using Google Chrome as management, for example? So a password manager specifically would be a third party application that only deals with the password management as opposed to Google Chrome that does all these other options and also has a password manager built into it. So you have one company that's specifically focused on their bread and butter is keeping your passwords safe versus another company that has, we can store your passwords and your information as well as make sure that Google has a good browsing, you know, UI, UX, everything else like that. Like it's not the primary focus of Google. In that as well, the user kind of messed up because they didn't have an MFA turned on for their password manager that was tied to their browser. So it doesn't matter if they had you know, a password manager saved to their browser without the MFA turned on, you know, just username and password got access to the first layer. And then, you know, they needed the VPN access because those credentials were stored in there and they used resource exhaustion to get there as well. You know, it's, it, they basically kind of did a privilege escalation ladder where it only hinged on one MFA response. So that makes me wonder, let's assume that I am able to get into your account that you're synchronizing the passwords. Are they stored just in clear text that I'm able to read them then or? No, they aren't stored in clear text, but I do believe that they can, um, that you can access the chain with a username and password. So if you know the original username and password, you can then access the chain. I also don't hold my feet to the fire on this, but I also don't believe that there is an exhaustion value for trying username and password attempts against the Google Chrome browser. I don't recall there being one um, having used it previously. Again, I might be wrong there, but if that's the case, that means that with a good enough word list, they can just 
try brute force. find your chain and then have all of the username and passwords in plain text. Mm -hmm. So basically it sounds like we need multiple levels of security regardless. The passwords aren't enough. Your token isn't enough. There's got to be some combination plus, you know, to make sure that uh, someone is not trying to steal those piece of information through some sort of social engineering vector. Yeah, so I prefer to think of it as being a hermit a little bit. Um, I don't click on links that are sent to me in email. Just don't. Um, if I have alerts that pop up regarding services, I log in directly into the service, and then I go and I check messages or notifications in that service. So for example, I get a banking email that says, hey, X, Y, and Z, your account has been overdraft, or you have pending money, or whatever the notification is. Um, I would log in directly to my bank by going to the bank's website through the URL I put in at the address bar, and then log in via that way using MFA. And then I would go to the notifications page and I would check. Same with Amazon, same with whatever service you want to talk about that I get might get an email about you know some type of billing issue. So I never click on a link in an email address unless I have specifically asked for it from the third party. Like, hey, can you send me that link? Hey, can you send me that attachment? And I'm expecting that attachment to come in. Um, option two as well. If I don't recognize the number, I generally don't pick up and I'll Google it first. Mm. Because I, I've had, I, you know, I'm, I'm a cybersecurity professional. There's plenty of reasons why people would want to compromise me. And I get too many spam and scam and phishing calls on a daily basis that there's just no point anymore. If you know me, you know my number, I'll talk to you and I've got you saved in my contacts. Right. <laughs> there's... Jack, that you doesn't know, explain why. Wait, does that is that why you never pick up my calls? <laughs> no, I have you saved in my contacts, <laughs> and I do pick up your calls. <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> um, you know, I was um, thinking though, Jack, that there is kind of another way to defeat that, like you said with the emails. That if you're getting a phone call from, you know, your tech support, whoever whoever is calling you, just ask for their phone number, and then you'll give them a call back, or you know, look up a, the. Yeah, that is a that is a great verification method. Um, you know, that's what we used in the government all the time as well is, you know, hey, call this call this number, put in this extension code to get my extension here at this line. And then you'll get an extension directly to their desk and you pick it back up and like, yes, it's me. OK, cool. Like call, calling somebody back is definitely a verification method. Um, I'll tell you a good example was I was once a subcontractor with a company. I have been doing all of my back and forth with the recruiter and the contract manager on one particular domain from the company that I was doing the work with. All of a sudden, I'm waiting on a contract to come to me to sign off and start my work. And it comes from a completely different uh, domain, email address, and somebody I don't recognize. So I just forwarded it over to the contract manager and the recruiter and said, hey, can you verify the authenticity of this? Because I wouldn't be worth my salt and worth signing this contract if I didn't ask, right? I, I don't recognize this domain. I don't know what this company is that you know just sent me over this contract to sign before i click on this before i get engaged with this do you know this person they're like yeah we're in the middle of switching over some it infrastructure that's an old domain we used to use this is authentic and legitimate but thanks for asking yeah so i think it sounds like you just have to be really vigilant all the time about just your your security behavior right I, I think that's fair. I mean, look at the ubiquity of, you know, internet connected devices in our day to day lives now. I think that it's real. I mean, 
to this day, I still look over my shoulder whenever I emerge lanes in a vehicle, right? I'm being aware of my surroundings. You should be just the same as, uh, you know, aware of your surroundings on the internet too. Don't click on links in your email and, you know, set up MFA if it's important to you and can really damage you if somebody was like, as you set up an account, you should ask what information is going to be there and will this hurt? If it does, turn on MFA. Also, I heard another one recently that was kind of interesting. For security questions, you're supposed to give fake answers to security questions. I've See, I've heard of that one before, and it, it does or it doesn't. I'm also a little bit pessimistic because I believe that if you get targeted by a top-tier attacker, like security questions and how good your your password is and things like that, it's going to be really challenging to set something up that they're not going to get past. So I tend to go more with the idea of, hey, let's focus on the automation stuff. If somebody dumps my password out, for example, for Google, let's say Google had this horrendic, horrendous um, breach and lost all the passwords and somebody was able to get in my email account, right? Um, I'm trying to make sure that my stuff is protected well enough that the automation isn't going to work. I'm not so worried about targeting and I'm just more worried about not pissing off people that could target me. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, and you, you, you work in this field, you know what I'm talking about? Like yeah. be respectful. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and yeah, because with a targeted attack, you've got some individuals that know more than the companies that have built the software because they've just been researching it for so long for vulnerabilities and things like that. Like there's just some things that you can't protect against and that's fine. It's it's more like uh, going swimming and planning for a shark attack. You know what I mean? Like n nobody keeps shark repellent on them. Nobody, right. nobody, you know what I mean? It happened, but, but shark attacks happen, gator attacks happen, animal attacks happen. But it's such a small magnitude of what actually occurs on a day-to-day -day basis that you basically are just more so focused on how to swim than because that's the actual bigger threat, right? So just try and avoid the autom automated attacks and not, you know, aggravate the shark in the water, if you will. <laughs> Um, we're, we're getting kind of close to the time here, but before we wrap this up, I wanted to ask both of you, um, or each of you just individually coming at it from, you know, as we've talked about two different, um, disciplines of cybersecurity and networking, um, what are your two big takeaways from this attack? I mean, the two, the two big things that you're like, okay, this is what we walk away with this, uh, from this with Brian, what are your, what are your two big ones? I think the big issue is that no matter how good your technology solution is, like I said, the, your security is only as good as your weakest link. So you have to make sure that your your employees, your your customers, whoever's accessing your systems, that they're properly trained, that they know, you know, not to answer those phone calls or reply to those emails, or when something like that does happen. Who, who do you get in touch with internally? And like Jack was saying, we don't want to have some sort of, uh, you know, case where the employee's afraid to, to say, hey, my account got compromised. We want to be in a, an environment where essentially we're using this as a, a learning tool that, hey, look what happened. You know, how do we prevent this again in the future as opposed to punishing somebody for, you know, having their account be compromised? Jack, what are, what are your two big ones? 
Um, I would agree that, you know, postmortem on this was really excellent from Cisco. I also want to applaud them from a communication standpoint, um, you know, from point of compromise to public release was 78 days. And that is really impressive. You know, it, it really goes to show that they are, uh, quote unquote, eating their own dog food here, where they are, you know, not just a a service provider or, you know, a device provider, but they're also like, hey, this is what we offer as far as services. Look, it happened to us. Take a look at this report. And the report that was written is top notch. It, it looks amazing. Um, bigger takeaway as far as remediation actions, I think, you know, there's a lot of indicators of compromise at the end of the report. There are a lot of recommended remediations. I think they hit the nail on the head. Uh, time, you know, uh, Authentication failure limits on the multi-factor authentication would have saved this. Uh, better network segmentation, you know, they, it's a little insane that they, you know, were able to add on. A, a, one part we didn't talk about is they were able to authenticate multiple devices after they were able to compromise the uh, MFA. They were able to add on multiple devices as well. So there's a couple of remediation points at the end of the report I really encourage you know the community to go take a look at and read through um, I I would I've been part of bigger organizations like this I've worked these types of compromises before I think the way that they're doing the reporting is excellent the communication is excellent and I highly highly recommend everybody take a look at the report and go back and the biggest takeaway like I said is great communication and you know, it looks like that they had great user support there too. It doesn't look like they were shaming the user. The verbiage that's being used in the report was excellent, um, not identifying and non-victim blaming either. So that's also very good. Awesome. All right. Uh, great, great stream today. I think uh, a ton of knowledge. Thank you guys uh, both for being here and sharing just kind of your perspective, your context. I think we, we all learned uh, a lot more about this. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. Really glad to be here. All right, no, we'll see you guys back uh, for sure on INE Live very, very soon. Um, thanks also to the audience for watching. That is going to wrap up today's stream. If you missed this live, you can look for the replay across our social media channels and on the INE website. Be sure to like and subscribe on the social platform you're using so you can stay in the loop for details on our next stream and get those notifications when we do go live. Before we head out, want to mention we are running an awesome promo right now. Uh, premium subscription for $4.99, Premium Plus subscription for $6.99, Pentester Academy for $1.99. We've got those promo, Q, uh, promo codes on our website, INE.com. It runs now through the 31st, so you're running out of time, but go grab that. Wanted to, uh, to just flag that real quick. We'll see you next time. Until then, have a great week.